Our talk is about nonviolence. When we take birth as a human being, it takes a lot of exploration to come to terms with the vast range of joy and sorrow in this world and the amount of change that happens in our lives. Uh, So we're born into a world of conditioned reality, of duality, pleasure, pain, marriage, divorce, birth, death, householder, nun or monk, predator, prey, female, male, war, peace, joy, sorrow, black, yellow, red, white, brown. And if we're not asleep, if we're awake, the range of joy and sorrow in this world can be shattering. It can crack us open, hopefully. And the spiritual journey is one of using the precious gift of our life, the precious gift of birth, wisely. So the gift of life ultimately will be our spiritual urgency to try to understand what it is life is, what is duality, how do we make sense of all of this. And if we do crack open and we are open and vulnerable and we receive our life, then we also need to be protected because the world can be so shattering, that range of joy and sorrow. And so we can learn to be protected by wisdom and love rather than defend ourselves with aversion, hatred, fear, and attachment, holding on to pleasure even though it passes. Getting in touch with our deep aspiration for the truth and to be free is part of what we're doing here. In fact, I don't think you'd be here if you didn't have some connection with this deeper aspiration. And there are times in my life where I reconnect with that. Recently, I've been teaching in Upper Burma, and there's a place called the Sagain Hills that is known as the spiritual heart of Burma that are some hills overlooking the Irrawaddy River. And just in one small area, there's over 4,000 nuns and 3,000 monks. And just to kind of come into that place is um, quite a mirroring for my aspiration to be free. And there's a cave that I sometimes get to visit when I'm there, although I tend to be busy teaching when I'm there. But sometimes I have the privilege of going into a cave where for over 1,500 years, just imagine if you came into IMS and people had been practicing here for 1,500 years, it'd have a pretty strong vibe. And it has a strong vibe. It's a spiritual home for a lot of people, and there's power in that. So there's power in this cave that's mind-boggling. And there have been many beings who've been fully enlightened in this cave, and one can feel it. So if one becomes totally awake, 
Uh, it's said that one doesn't leave a trace, but one doesn't leave a trace of aversion, anger, ill will, or attachment, identification. But the taste, the vibe, is one of total freedom, wisdom, and total love. And when I go in there, I just start crying. You know, because I rarely get that mirroring in my own culture. You know, you go into a mall, you don't quite get that mirroring necessarily. (laughs) You know, it's quite um, rare, actually, that we get that um, deep feedback that this is a good thing to do with our lives. So it's important to ask ourselves, you know, what is our deepest wish for ourselves? And what is our deepest wish for others? And this is so important. I mean, if we could just wake up and spend one second or a few seconds doing that each day, you would find that your day would be put into context. You know, what am I doing today? This is a poem by a great Sufi master, Haviz, and this is from the 14th century. It's called Dropping Keys. The small man builds cages for everyone he knows, while the sage, who has to duck his head when the moon is low, keeps dropping keys all night long for the beautiful, rowdy prisoners. Do you think of yourself as a beautiful, rowdy prisoner? Well, the great sages of the earth drop us keys, no matter what tradition, no matter what religious tradition. So I'd like to talk about some keys that the Buddha dropped Um, And one conceptual framework for awakening in this life is the seven factors of enlightenment. That was one of the keys he dropped. And please understand this as a framework. Use what's useful and just kind of throw out the window what you don't need. So the first factor of awakening or of freedom, this deep aspiration, that most human beings have, I think all of us do, is mindfulness. The more you practice, sometimes the more you don't know what mindfulness really is. Uh, It's a pre-verbal awareness. It's the intention to understand rather than to judge. And it's like the warp of of a weaving. You know, this mindfulness keeps the other six factors in balance. It helps ripen them all. So I'd like to describe the others. They're uh, in pairs in this great world of duality. Even the seven factors have it. So the first three after mindfulness are energizing. Uh, And they're uh, investigation, as I talked about this morning, energy or courage, and joyful interest. You can see those are energizing. And then, since what goes up must come down, for us to stay in balance, there's calm, concentration, equanimity, the tranquilizing factors of awakening. And it's said that when these come into balance, it's a moment of awakening. It's a moment of freedom. 
these ripen at different times in our life, in our practice. In fact, you know, you'll come into a life with some of these more ripe than others. And sometimes it'll feel like we're working on some of these for a long time. But when we do have a moment where we are somewhat in balance, when we're here, really here, there'll be a moment of peace, of nonviolence, of happiness, contentment. And we'll really know the truth that what we have in that moment is all that we need. It's just enough. These seven factors of enlightenment aren't far away from us. You know, they're not esoteric. Uh, They're closer to us than our nose, our hair, our bones, our blood. You know, so please don't think of these as something far away or something 20 years from now. They're in this moment if there's some kind of balance of these factors. And they ripen. So some people will ask, is awakening sudden or is it gradual? It's both. It can be sudden, but it'll happen because there were (laughs) some years of patience with investigation. You know, so they don't just happen once. This balance just doesn't happen once. Our accessing ability with these keeps deepening as we practice. So they can only happen in the present moment. That balance can only happen now. Now, when you're brushing your teeth, when you're leaning over your chair, when you're wondering if you'll make it through this talk, you know, whatever it is, it's like they happen now, 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 not yesterday, not when you were eating watermelon before. It's just in the moment of being awake that it happens. And I think you might remember when you learned to ride a bicycle. You probably didn't get on the bike and take off. Even if you had training wheels, you had training (laughs) wheels. It's like we fall off a lot. And balance in life, a nonviolent heart and mind, is much harder to achieve than riding a bicycle or being a virtuoso at anything. It's being, uh, having a deep art and science with life, with your own life. So mindfulness, the first factor of awakening, the beginning part of a moment of mindfulness is remembering to be here. You know, that's all it takes, remembering. And you'll lose it, you'll remember. You'll lose it, you'll remember. And it's not a thought about experience. And this is what's hard for us. It's pre-verbal. It's that moment before the concept happened. Uh, And that takes a certain degree of stillness. That's why we need enough stillness, because it's pre-verbal. It's that direct perception of reality itself. And it's not complicated. It's simple. This ability to just be with life right on the surface of it, with that car going by right now, with the knee pain, with the sound of the fan or the cricket right now. You know, that's that pre-verbal awareness, being here. One of the troubles, or one of the issues of whether we take the red pill or the blue pill is that we don't get that choice just once. We get it every moment. 
And you know the people who you saw make the choice but then sold out. Meaning, you can make the choice and then go 20 years maybe and not make the choice again. The trouble with life is that we get the choice every moment until we die. It's, it's either we're making the choice to be awake or asleep. And so our commitment to be awake can change. Our motivation can change. Uh, and the most important thing to remember in this is that any time you remember to be here, that not only gives you that moment, but it plants the seed for another moment of remembering to be here. And try it. Try sitting for five minutes and controlling whether you can be here or not. You can't do it. But that moment when you see you have that choice, you remember to come back and be here, that'll plant another seed to remember to be here. But you can't control when that's going to happen. But if you put in your time, you know, I literally see a retreat. I say this with all my retreats. You punch in in the morning (laughs) and you punch out at night because you just do the best you can. And the Dharma, the truth will take over. It happens in spite of us. And it's like when you come to a retreat, it's like putting yourself in an incubator. It just um, makes us more accident-prone to enlightenment, to awakening. It speeds it up. It's a great thing. And it's important to know that we're not perfect. You know, it's like we're not born perfect or we wouldn't be in the human world. So please remember that you're doing the best you can and that self-blame or blaming others in this whole journey of life is such a grievous error. It's so painful. There's a Sayadaw from Burma who says, I've done a lot of unwholesome things in my life, but I don't blame myself or others. It's impossible not to have done anything unwholesome. I am trying to practice Dharma, and I'm happy about that. We're practicing the seven factors of enlightenment. And can we be happy about that, knowing that we make mistakes, we fall off the bike, again and again. We're learning. And to trust ourselves. Investigation. It's that light that goes on in a dark room. And it's any time you question. When I was 13 years old, I was kicked out of the church I was in because I asked questions. Officially excommunicated. They had incense and everything. (laughs) It was a big deal. You know, and I wanted to talk about abortion and um, euthanasia and uh, LSD. Uh, That was in 1962 or something, and it it wasn't appreciated, you know, at all. Uh, And that questioning was really vital for me. And I felt that I had to find some place where that was allowed. And for me, you know, in this, in this um, tradition, I found that. I found that the ehipasito that the Buddha taught, come and see for yourself, that the people I ran into appreciated that questioning. Uh, 
sometimes questioning can lead to skeptical doubt and lead down to a a whole path of self-hatred and bottoming out. But sometimes questioning leads to this investigation and brings us to the truth. And we have to find that balance for ourselves. So this kind of questioning means um, it can be very subtle. Say we're bored and there's dullness happening. Investigation is a shift in attitude to just wondering, well, what is the experience of boredom versus judging it? And it's that shift in attitude that makes the experience full of wonder and awe versus not worthy of our attention. And how many of our moments of life aren't worthy of our attention? You know, we're stuck up. We think that somehow we're better than it. But look at how many moments we waste because we judge rather than open. So investigation is what allows us to be walking and to be able to take that step and wonder, you know, what is that experience versus I know. You know, and one of my favorite teachings was when I was with my nephew when he was first learning to talk. Uh, And I could watch his ego starting to develop that protection of knowing. Uh, And he, but he needed to know what things were named, you know. So it was a real dilemma for him because he'd want to act like he knew what something was before he knew it. You know, so he'd say, well, what is this? And it would kill him to have to ask me, what's that? You know, and I'd say, well, that's a bell. And he'd say, I know. You know, <laughs> you know, because it was miserable for him to admit that he didn't know. And then it would be, well, what's this? You know, and I'd say, that's a rug. And he'd say, I know. That's what we're doing almost every moment. It's secure. It's safe. I know what the breath is. Why do we have to do this? You know, I know what anger is. I know what fear is. I know what love is. I know who I am. I know where I'm going. Where am I going five days from now? Well, I'm going to this job or this home or these set of parents or this or this. We just make our life into this conceptual prison. And then we don't ask the question to be here. Well, what is this moment right now? You know, so investigation, again, is what brings life. It brings light. It wakes us up. In the traditional context, it said that it lights up the nature of life. So it lights up impermanence, that everything that takes birth will die, will change. That experience itself is unsatisfactory because it can't yield a lasting, permanent happiness. So when we understand that, we start letting go of experience as being everything. And when we do that, the awareness starts getting stronger than the experience. We don't expect too much from it, but we don't give up on it. We connect with experience, but we don't hold on. And the third thing investigation is meant to light up is the insubstantial nature of experience. So if you look really closely at a sound or the breath or a thought, thoughts are the best, and how ephemeral and light and insubstantial are thoughts and how much power they have over us. 
Do you want to live like that? Do you want to be a victim of your own mind? Or do you want it to be more of a friend? So seeing clearly how experience is insubstantial helps us to not make so much of it and be a prisoner of it. Investigation is one of my favorite factors of enlightenment, if you can't tell, because it brings energy, it brings light, it helps us to cut through the prison. It starts opening the jail cell. It's a big key. So there's mindfulness and investigation, and then there's energy. And if you think of it as courage, it's really important, because it takes courage not to know. It takes courage to be willing to face the next moment because everything's changing and we really don't know what's going to happen. One of my teachers from Burma, Sayada Upandita, would tell me, mindfulness is having a mind that's ready for anything. You know, and I wanted it to lead to just peak experiences, you know, to just have it all be the ups. You know, but the truth is that anything can happen. And so mindfulness and these factors of enlightenment protect us because they help develop this soft readiness where we're re- just ready for the next moment. We're ready for the next moment, whether it's painful or pleasurable, because that's the truth. So if we're aspiring to be connected in our hearts with the truth, it's having the courage to face that we don't know if the next moment will be pleasurable or painful. So we're having the courage to face what is. Sometimes the practice can be effortless, and sometimes it takes effort. It's like, is enlightenment sudden or gradual? It's both. Does the practice, is it effortless or effortful? It's both. But really be careful of striving, because striving is moving us out of the moment to something that we're not. And this energy is meant to be going into just what is happening, rather than what we're wanting to get. So this balance of courage, of energy, is really about facing what's there, even if it is boredom, or if it's nothing's happening and we're getting impatient if it's impatience. There's a little friend of mine down the street that uh, has soccer games. And one of his first soccer games, um, his mom was there at at the game. And there were all these big kind of macho guys on the other team. And his team was kind of small and kind of, you know, they didn't, They look kind of like nice kids that weren't about to go for blood, you know. So these two kind of different types of teams were out on the the field, and I could see his mom just kind of withering, like, oh, no. Uh, And so this boy played really courageously. And he came back, you know, he was, you know, when he had some time out. And his mom said to him, you know, weren't you afraid of those big guys? And he said, you know... I loved soccer so much, I just got the ball, and I was afraid, but I kicked the ball around those big guys because I love soccer so much. 
Can you say that about life? Can you love life so much that you're willing to get the ball and play your, play your game because you love the truth so much and are willing to face the joys and sorrows of it, all the duality of it, rather than just what you want? This takes a certain amount of patience. And sometimes I like the metaphor of you know, the worm to the cocoon to the butterfly, because we tend to like being the butterfly. And we tend to like thinking that life should just be a little bit of the worm sometime in the cocoon, and then with the butterfly, and that's it. But we do that over and over again if we, we're growing. You know, and when we're the worm, you know, we're just chewing, and it's pretty dull, and we're fairly asleep, and then we're in the cocoon. And you know, if you open up a cocoon before it's ready, it'll die. And there are times in our life when we're in the cocoon that something's happening and we think nothing's happening. And then when we're the butterfly, we think, this is it, this is good practice, this is how I want my life to be. And it's great. It's not that we don't love being the butterfly at times, but life requires all of these aspects of the worm, (laughs) the cocoon, and the butterfly, and it takes patience. I just read a book called The Legacy of Luna by Julia Butterfly Hill, and she's a contemporary of yours, so I would really recommend um, reading her. Uh, She, um, when she was 23, decided to do a sitting in a tree, a redwood, called Luna. And when she started, you know, she was protesting the cutting of the redwoods. And she went up 180 feet in a tree. And she didn't come down for two years. 180 feet is really high. She had no training in this. She just had her heart and her love for the redwoods. And it's an amazing story. I mean, how she really just kept listening. And she didn't have the intention to stay two years in the tree. It's really important to know. She just listened to her heart, and she didn't want this tree cut. And it took two years to save it. And she went through El Nino and El Nino, that she had the most intense uh, weather. Uh, And this is a description of the storm, the most intense storm that she went through. Mm. Well, I can't read the whole thing, but I'll read part of it. The trees in the storm... This is when she tried to soothe herself because she was freaking out. I guess I'll read the... I don't know what's happening here. I don't want to go down because I made a pact with you. She's talking to the tree. I don't know what's happening here. I don't want to go down because I made a pact with you. But I can't be strong now. I'm frightened out of my mind. Luna, Luna's the name of the tree. Luna, I'm losing it. I'm going crazy. And then the tree answered to her. And this is what she says. The trees in the storm don't try to stand up straight and tall. They allow themselves to bend and be blown with the wind. They understand the power of letting go. The tree continued to speak. 
Those trees and those branches that try too hard to stand up strong and straight are the ones that break. Now is not the time for you to be strong, or you too will break. Learn the power of the trees. Let it flow. Let it go. That is the way you are going to make it through the storm. And that is the way to make it through the storms of life. I couldn't have realized any of this without having been broken emotionally and spiritually and mentally and physically. I had to be pummeled by humankind. I had to be pummeled by Mother Nature. I had to be broken until I saw no hope, until I went crazy, until I finally let go. Only then could I be rebuilt. Only then could I be filled back up with who I am meant to be. Only then could I become my higher self. That's why she named herself Butterfly. I recommend this book. The Legacy of Luna. Luna is the name of the tree she saved. She saved the tree, but most of the forest died around her. And she stayed in the tree and lived through it. It's quite moving. So courage, courage to go through the storms, through the joy, and to get stronger through that process. Investigation, courage, we're still on the energy side of things, and joyful interest. And what's interesting about this is that it's not the joy or happiness of pleasure, of just pleasure. It's joyful interest. It's called joyful interest because one is interested in life, whether it's painful, pleasant, or neutral. So you know you'll be sitting and you might have some knee pain. That's pretty common, yeah. <laughs> or maybe it's lower back or a meat hook in the middle of the back, you know, or something. But if you sit long enough, you're going to get some pain. And if you sit still, there's a possibility of becoming interested in it. And there's a reason why we do this. You know, it's learning how to become interested in pain as well as pleasure. And if you become interested in something painful, you will feel joyful interest because you're breaking down the ego. The ego is only interested in pleasure. That's why we sit still through everything, through the sound of the wind, which is very pleasurable. But we also sit through the pain in the body as well as the pleasure. Sometimes it's called the deep delight in the truth of things. So it's an interest in the truth, joyful. Sometimes this is described as the pure heart of a child. You know, a child doesn't have that expectation or ambition. It's just the exploration itself, and it's joyful. But you know, a child doesn't have a lot of wisdom. So it takes the hard knocks of life, plus the openness of heart, that brings the wisdom. And I think of joy happening when we can receive life. 
So you'll find that you're with a hundred breaths, but maybe with one breath you really receive it. Marvin talked about aiming and connecting. So aiming requires receiving it. You receive the birth, life, death of a breath. And if you can really do that, it'll feel joyful. And if you can do that with anger, say you can really receive the birth, life, death of anger, or the birth, life, death of metta, you start letting life come and go like clouds in the sky. Now experience comes and goes, and if you can be with it, if it's pleasurable, it's hard to be with. You know, when life is pleasurable, we can all hold on before it goes. I had an experience in Burma this year where it was my third year there and it went really well. And the second year went really bad. I had a really hard time, personally. So the third year went just the opposite. And halfway through the retreat that I was teaching, I started thinking, oh no, next year could never be as good as this year. And it was incredible. I kept thinking, oh no, next year could never be as good as this year. And I started ruining my experience. And it was fine, you know, but we can have a hard time with joyful times as well as bad times when we start worrying that they're going to end or not be as good enough. I was a freshman in college in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is not exactly the prettiest town in the state. I used to call it the armpit of the nation. <laughs> uh, it's not an easy town, city, whatever it is. And in that year, which was 69, I got involved in a lot of ghetto riots, protests of the Vietnam War. And the grand finale was I got involved with the Black Panthers. And I had so much anger at the suffering in this world. I can't tell you. I mean, I was just exploding with it. Um, and one night I found myself making Molotov cocktails in a room with Black Panthers, the only Caucasian person. And the next day I find myself walking around campus with two Molotov cocktails in my pockets. And luckily, I had this revelation. You know, it was a great moment of the red pill or the blue pill. Uh, and I just realized, it's like I got what I was doing. It was like so close. Some of my friends are still in jail. I mean, it was really a painful time. Uh, and some of my friends have gotten out, but they missed a lot of their life. And I realized that that gasoline and the fire and the destruction that that could have been caused wasn't my path. Uh, and it was such a critical moment for me. You might not have a moment that that's critical, but you'll have moments in life that are that critical. And I really pulled back. I dropped out of school. I started taking care of my sister's three kids because that wasn't going well for her. started waitressing. And I spent a lot of time by the ocean and just let the sea, the sound of the sea, 
start cooling me out. Um, and I realized in that moment where I put, the, I put the Molotov cocktails in a garbage can in the student cafeteria, <laughs> I just put them in the garbage can, you know, those swinging ones, you know, kind of looked around. <laughs> one looked around, the next one, and I left. Uh, and it, I realized that nonviolence was my way. You know, and it's, it was so profound. It's like there's never been an end to that commitment. I went to such an edge that I never wanted to even get that close again to that kind of danger. Uh, and it was such a relief to get in touch with my aspiration, you know, for that nonviolence to be free. The seven factors of enlightenment are the key. That's the description of a nonviolent heart or mind. In one of the Grimm's fairy tales, there's a competition between a giant and a little tailor to see who is stronger. Who do you think wins, the giant or the tailor? The giant throws a stone so high that it takes a really long time for the stone to fall but it falls in the ground. But the tailor, the little small tailor, let a bird fly, and it never, never went down. So he was considered the strongest. So the, these factors of enlightenment are like being given wings. But investigation, energy, joy, you know, they can become like a balloon that starts to get filled and filled with air. Uh, and we can get too high. I'm sure you know what that feeling is. Uh, in the movie American Beauty, they talk about that a lot, where the, the young guy in the film talks about his heart getting so full that he feels like he's going to explode. And it's a beautiful description. But then he, he relaxes and lets life flow through him and he comes back down to that balance. So these next three factors of enlightenment bring balance, calm. I'll do it very quickly. You know when you can hear the sound of a refrigerator and then it, you hear it go off? That's calm. Concentration. Concentration is an uncomplicated heart. It's seclusion. And very briefly, when we ask you to go to the breath, that's neutral. So an anchor, if you think of being lost at sea, a ship at sea in a storm, an anchor keeps us stable. And it's not meant to be pleasant or unpleasant. You know, we wonder, you know, it's so refined, it's so hard to be with. But the reason why we're with it is because it's neutral. And no matter what's going on in life, it's something to learn to come back to, like listening to the ocean, each wave. It cools us out. It simplifies us. It stabilizes us. And if we're with one breath, check it out. If you're really with one breath, are you in mental torment? Or are you free? It's simple. And it's meant to help us get still enough and 
quiet enough, tranquil enough to explore. Equanimity. So you can see the difference, calm, concentration. Equanimity is like being undressed, naked, transparent. There's no resistance to anything whatsoever. It's a nonviolent heart. It's a total acceptance of what's happening. So say you're really attracted to somebody. Equanimity is going, oh, attraction. Let's see if I can be with it. What we do is we go, oh, and we bite the fish. (gasps) Yeah? And we go off on that hook, and we have an incredible ride, but it's all happening in here. It's not happening out there. Say we don't like somebody. (gasps) It's out there. We bite the hook. We're miserable. But it actually happened in here. The unpleasantness actually happened in here. But equanimity is the great gift, because if you see clearly enough, you go, oh, not liking, or liking. And instead of getting caught in it and lost in it and having no space whatsoever, no inner space, equanimity is like, it's okay. Let me see if I can experience it, rather than get lost in the drama, the story. And the experience, instead of us getting lost, and getting stuck, it takes birth, lives itself out, and passes away, just like a sound or a breath. So this is incredible to have the balance and the stability not to have to resist anything. And this equalizes everything, so that brushing your teeth is just as important as a breath, or talking with your friend, talking in the discussion group, playing a drum, going to sleep. Each moment is equally important because each moment is equal worthy of our attention to wake up with. You can get liberated watching boredom. You can get liberating experiencing the deepest yearning you could possibly imagine. You can get liberated eating a piece of watermelon you can get liberated noticing the movement of the breath. Oh boy. So equanimity isn't denial, it's not passivity, it's not indifference. So please don't think of this practice as passivity and not taking action. That would be a dismal misinterpretation that a lot of people make. It means that we take responsibility for our mind and our heart, and we take action with wisdom and love, rather than aversion and attachment. We're protected, and we bring love and wisdom into the world, rather than more reacting to the joy and sorrow. Now, this is a great gift that you can bring to the world. And if you cannot, you know, don't expect too much from yourself. Don't idealize. Don't, if you try to be non-human and a saint too quickly, it's too much. It's like it can get discouraging. But if you pace yourself and really trust your aspiration to be free, 
and do the best you can and learn from your mistakes. You know, you'll, you're on your way. You're on your way if you're here. Hmm. So these factors of enlightenment, you know, just generally, if you feel like you're kind of getting sleepy or too complacent in life or too relaxed or too calm, try bringing some courage or investigation to your moments. And if you feel like you're going off like a rocket, getting too excited or too energized or excited, enthusiastic, you can balance it with calm, concentration, equanimity. So balance, nonviolence. It's a great gift for yourself in this world. So I'd like to end with a poem by Pablo Neruda called Too Many Names. No one can claim the name of Pedro. Nobody is Rosa or Maria. All of us are dust or sand. All of us are rain under rain. They have spoken to me of Venezuela, of Chile, and Paraguay. I have no idea what they are saying. I know only the skin of the earth, and I know it has no name. I have a mind to confuse things, unite them, make them newborn, mix them up, undress them, until all the light in the world has the oneness of the ocean, a generous, vast wholeness, a crackling, living fragrance. May our lives have a crackling, living fragrance. Let's sit for a minute. Please don't underestimate the power of your mind and heart, your aspiration to be free and to light up this world. <laughs>